Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. Coming at you on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and here with video on YouTube. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to what I have to say. I always appreciate your viewership. I um, have put some things out recently that have been a little deeper, a little more significant, I think, to the world at large than just Scientology-related material. And I wanted to, I was getting some really, really great feedback on that, which really encouraged me. So thank you very much for those of you who have been listening to my earlier, uh, last week's podcast and the video I put out about, you know, questioning our own side and looking critically, like, what, you know, what is the point of critical thinking if you can't use it in every aspect of your life? What's the point of thinking that you're intelligent if you don't apply that intelligence as equally to your own causes and your own prejudices and your own biases as you do to those of others? What's the point of protesting other people's biases or other people's prejudices if you can't also look closely at your own and see where you also might be falling down? I think these are important and relevant questions. Today may be more so than ever. We've made a lot of progress over the millennia as human beings, uh, getting to where we've gotten, and we're at a place now which is probably, in many ways, the best of times. But as Dickens wrote, in many ways, maybe some might consider it's also the worst of times. Well, I don't particularly subscribe to that latter point of view, and I'm going to go over some things here in this podcast this week to talk about why that is. Um, I think that people can get into a frame of mind in the immediacy and passion of the moment and the heat of their, you know, the intensity of, of, of the outrage that we feel when we see things or hear about things, and they lose perspective. And I think perspective is very, very important, uh, maybe more so in those moments of outrage than when things are calm and chill and everything's kind of smooth sailing. There, is a, there seems to be a tendency that I'm seeing increase recently. Um, I've been watching the Trump campaign. I've been you know, podcasting ever since that started, commenting on uh, disagreeing with, being extremely critical of Donald Trump, uh, being extremely critical of the right and, and actions that are taken by the right, by the Republicans. Recently, I've been turning that critical eye more to the left, and looking at you know some of the errors and mistakes that have been made by my own side, so to speak, and I've been moving you know more more towards the center, and and you know saying so. Well, in doing that and looking at my own side more critically, I've started to notice, uh, especially even just this last week. You know, I actually planned on putting this podcast together over you know, a week ago. I was looking at the subject matter and. And what I've been seeing over the last week is an increase in, in the defensiveness uh, of the left about being uncivil. <laughs> you know, there's this, there was this uh, really stupid, historically completely unimportant uh, thing that happened with Sarah Huckabee Sanders being asked to leave a restaurant, and she left, and then she made a little bit of a stink about it. And, you know, sparking t a Twitter storm of controversy over the incivility of the left and, you know, this sort of, okay, well, we did it, well, you did it uh, first, and, well, you did it first. And, it just, you know, really, to my ears, it all sounds like a bunch of five-year-olds arguing on a playground. 
which is pretty much the intellectual level of Twitter for the most part. So I guess I shouldn't have been too surprised. But I want, but it got me thinking, and it made me want to bring up a point and really and, and dedicate a podcast to this. And that is not in dedication of the memory of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, who, by the way, I despise as a human being, and, and I do believe that she is a professional liar. Um, you know, but I think she has just as much a right to go eat a meal in peace as anybody else. And that brings me to my point, which is that being a jerk really doesn't have anything to do with stopping the bad guys. You know, because people are bad, because people act evil, harmful, you know, in a a bad way, I don't really get why that becomes an invitation for people who want to fight back against that to lose their manners and civility. Um, Which is not to say that you need to be kind towards people who are literally... Um, putting you in jail or, you know, doing something very, very harmful to you or enacting laws against you. I'm not saying, oh, smile and turn the other cheek. It's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm, t- what I'm making the point of is just because somebody is bad or evil or harmful doesn't mean that we ourselves in fighting that need to become bad or evil or harmful. And in fact, if we're going to maintain any kind of moral high ground, and this is on either side, I'm not, I'm not speaking about the left or the right right now. If you're going to maintain a moral high ground, then you need to be a moral person. And you need to show that you have some degree of, uh, you have a moral compass and that you're willing to operate with it. I think that's kind of important. On the left, we have right now, this is just in the last 24 hours, I've been alerted to the fact by friends of mine that uh, there are credible threats being made by people on the left against uh, Homeland Security and uh, immigration agents and employees. Apparently somebody hacked the Department of Homeland Security database, got all of the uh, employees' information, addresses, phone numbers. And this is including office staff, secretaries, the janitor. I mean, anybody who works for this organization, apparently that information was put out there. Now, I'm saying this unver- in an unverified way, okay? I didn't go look at this database of information myself. What I did get is that this the threat against Homeland Security is being taken very seriously, and they are actually on a level one alert. And anybody who works for, those, for the Homeland Security or for uh, ICE has been instructed to avoid social media, keep their personal information off the net, um, and stay up pretty, pretty much stay offline and uh, avoid, you know, stay home, keep the doors locked. I mean, they're very serious about this. And is that really called for? Is that really the level of, uh, is, that, is that the effect you wanted to create out there? And if so, I think you're a jerk. I, I think you're a total asshole if that's what you think is necessary right now in order to fight our bad immigration system, which, by the way, has been bad for decades. And this Donald Trump separating children at the border thing, yeah, that's bad. That was done in a calculated effort to try to make it so bad to come to the United States illegally that people wouldn't do it. Well, I don't know that that's particularly a very good strategy. I don't agree with the way the White House these days deals with uh, issues at our border. 
but that's but that doesn't mean that I want to make it personal to every single person who's trying to make a living enforcing our laws by threatening their lives. That makes no sense at all. So that's my statement on that. At the same time, we have white supremacists on the right who are planning yet another Unite the Right. Uh, this is being called Unite the Right 2 uh, event, public demonstration in Washington, D.C. this time rather than in Charlottesville. And it's organized by the same guy named Jason Kelly. And this is supposed to be a two-day, quote-unquote, white civil rights rally. And if that doesn't sound like the most disingenuous, stupid thing I've ever heard of, uh, well, it is. That is what, that's exactly what that is. And you'll recall that their last event a year ago in Charlottesville did very little to forward the cause of white civil rights, but it did end up uh, killing a woman uh, who was, was there because one of these uh, so-called white supremacists who's now been indicted for uh, hate crime for this ran her over. So tell me how right you guys, you white supremacists are. <laughs> you know, that, that, there's no rightness to that at all. That is completely insane. And, of course, the entire foundation of their protest is ridiculous. They have the right to protest. I am not trying and in, in, in speaking my mind about that. I'm not going to say that they should be shut down, that they don't have the right to protest or uh, assemble peaceably. Uh, but given the fact that they were not extremely peaceful last year, I don't know that, uh, you know that we shouldn't be keeping an eye on that. But that's not to say that we need to show up in riot gear and be prepared to fight them. That's, that only forwards the problem. It doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. All right. In the last 24 hours, here are a couple sample tweets that come across my, my Twitter feed. Quote, until we riot in this country and take the bull by the horn, trust me, we ain't moving anywhere. Revolution is the key. End quote. And another one. Quote, dear Michael Moore, I look forward to your anti-Trump documentary, but I think you are definitely going to have to do a sequel because as horrible as it is, it isn't even at its peak yet. The uprising and riots are yet to come and you are definitely going to want to film that. End quote. So I don't think it's particularly odd or strange of me to, to get the sense that there are people out there who are very eager to engage in and incite civil uh, disruption, um, violent protests, and riots, which, of course, cause uniformly cause untold number of uh, amounts of damage to uh people who had nothing to do with what was going on, to property, property owners, business people, small business people, just trying to make their way in life. How'd you like to be running a small mom and pop tailoring shop or uh, you know, a local franchise of McDonald's and you show up to your building only to find it burned and in ruins because some asshats thought that was a really great way of showing their protest against the government in Washington, D.C. that you have absolutely nothing to do with. Please explain to me how that has any degree of rationality or sense connected with it, how that makes any sense at all to take out your problems, your need to violently protest our government by victimizing innocent people who have nothing to do with the problems you are experiencing. 
That's called insanity. All right. So I'm not advocating doing nothing. I'm not saying that you should turn the other cheek. I'm not saying that you should take it, that you should lay down, that you should be happy with what you got, that this is the best of times in history, so what's your problem? I'm I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying that if you're going to engage in civil protest, make it effective and make it targeted and make it real. Make it strike at the people who are actually doing the harm. And this business of violent protests, it's just wholly unnecessary. We have gotten so much done in this country through civil protest, through civil disobedience, through nonviolent protesting, that it's, it's really not even a question of co- that we know those things work. Now, I got curious about this, and I started looking some stuff up, and I found this uh, article, actually, that was talking about Martin Luther King Jr., one of my, you know, favorite people, uh, because he definitely stood up for what he believed in. He definitely uh, was a leader in the civil rights movement through the 1960s, and he was a principled person. Uh, you know, say what you will about his humanity, and he was an adulterer, and he was this, he was that. You know, I don't really get the point of even talking about that stuff. The man was a hero, and he stood up, and he took a stand, and he went to jail for it, and eventually he got shot and killed for it. Um, that's integrity. That's honor. Well, here's the quote from the article I found. It said here, just a year earlier in a tense 60 Minutes interview with Mike Wallace, he insisted that the vast majority of black people in America still honored nonviolent resistance as the best way forward, but acknowledged that a rising group in the black community was now advocating for violent resistance. This interview is where his famous a riot is the language of the unheard, quote, originated, citing the newfound urgency facing black people. Just a few sentences later, often left out of our retelling of the quote, King warned of violence in the coming summers while also holding fast to his hope for nonviolence. Quote, I would say that every summer we're going to have this kind of vigorous protest, he told Wallace. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we would be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter as we have been this summer. Here's a quote from Wikipedia regarding nonviolent protest. From 1966 to 1999, Nonviolent civic resistance played a critical role in 50 of 67 transitions from authoritarianism. Recently, nonviolent resistance has led to the Rose Revolution in Georgia and the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Current nonviolent resistance includes the Jeans Revolution in Belarus, the Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia, and the fight of the Cuban dissidents. Many movements which promote philosophies of nonviolence or pacifism have pragmatically adopted the methods of nonviolent action as an effective way to achieve social or political goals. They employ nonviolent resistance tactics such as information warfare, picketing, marches, vigils, leafleting, protest art, protest music and poetry, community education and consciousness raising, lobbying, tax resistance, 
civil disobedience, boycotts or sanctions, legal-slash-diplomatic wrestling, underground railroads, principled refusal of awards and honors, and general strikes. Nonviolent action differs from pacifism by potentially being proactive and interventionist, end quote. Now, Martin Luther King's words didn't stop the Watts riots or the Detroit riots, and they ended up leaving a stream of carnage and destruction that quite literally these cities are only now starting to recover from. Now, this actually starts at a personal level, and it goes south very, very quickly. And this has to do with demonizing or dehumanizing the opposing side, whatever that side might be. The right does it to the left, the left does it to the right, the blacks do it to the whites, the whites do it to the blacks, the reds do it to the blues, the blues do it to the grays. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what cause you are fighting for or how just you think it is. When you start dehumanizing the, the opposing side, it's very, very difficult to walk back from that. In fact, it's nearly impossible. Because now you start making out other human beings as less than human, as different from human, as evil incarnate, as demons. That's why we call it demonizing them. Here's a quote about this from a guy named David Livingstone Smith, who wrote a book called Less Than Human. And he is the director and founder of the Human Nature Project at the University of New England. He said, quote, dehumanization isn't a way of talking. It's a way of thinking, a way of thinking that sadly comes all too easily to us. Dehumanization is a scourge and has been so for millennia. It acts as a psychological lubricant, dissolving our inhibitions and inflaming our destructive passions. As such, it empowers us to perform acts that would, under other circumstances, be unthinkable. From the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, quote, Dehumanization is viewed as a central component to intergroup violence because it is frequently the most important precursor to moral exclusion, the process by which stigmatized groups are placed outside the boundary in which moral values, rules, and considerations of fairness apply. So, when you take someone and you put them outside, this is the us versus them mentality that I've talked so much about when it comes to cult mentalities. The dehumanization and demonization of opposing people, is part. it's all one and the same. Because what it does is it sets people up who are real human beings, who were born of, of, of man and woman, who had an upbringing, who had an education, who, who came along in life, who live and love and hate and everything else that you do. You create that person as something not a person. And by doing that, it allows you to justify, rationalize that you can take immoral actions against them. You can take violent actions against them, and it's okay because they're really not human. They've been set, it's sort of the ultimate in labeling. No one really seems to consider, and this is one of, one of my biggest problems with this, the long-term consequences of these kind of actions. Once you start calling someone a racist, for example, how do you take that back once you found out that they aren't? Do you even try to take it back? If you find out they aren't what you made them out to be, 
that they're just as human as you are, then what do you do? Well, generally, people rationalize their disagreements even harder with some other nonsense that so they can be right and they can keep that other person in the wrong. They double down because you know your cause is just, even if your methods aren't perfect. Now, down that road lies the end justifies the means. And that is the exact reasoning which leads to things like the French Revolution and blood in the streets. And that's why I might sound here like I'm kind of coming off out of nowhere. Uh, I'm not. This is, I mean, I read you a couple of tweets. I've, you know, you can see this in the news right now. We, you know, this is, there is an effort being made, a definite effort being made by people on both sides to rile people up and get them thinking that violent recourse is the only answer to what's happening in America right now. Zach Schmoll wrote on a blog called Entering the Public Square, quote, Another effective way to kill debate is by dehumanizing your opponent. This goes beyond simply disagreeing with someone on a policy position. This goes beyond the level of having a heated conversation about gun control and regulation. This goes to the level of one side believing that no decent human being could take the other position. If you take that evil position, it is literally impossible for you to be a decent human being. With this type of strong posture assumed prior to any type of discussion, it is very hard to have any kind of intelligent debate. After all, if you do not believe that the opposing belief can be held by decent human beings, there's no way that you're open for a debate, end quote. And this happens on our social media. <laughs> oh, my God. If you support Trump, you are a blank. Blanket statement. You are a racist, bigot, misogynist, fill in the blank, whatever. How dare you? How could you? You are not, there's no way I can be your friend. You are not a decent human being. In fact, you are not even a human being anymore. You are dead to me. You are nothing to me. You are as a rodent or a cockroach to me, and I will crush you gladly. That's the progression, that, and it escalates that quickly. People see, here's, here's what happens. People see some outrageous event, something just, you know, and it's always presented through the media. You know, very rarely do we see these things happening from direct report. Most often we get this stuff through some kind of you know, crazy, outrageous headline that comes across our social media feed, or we turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, and we watch the you know, outrage of the hour as it's being discussed by obviously biased journalists who have very definitely taken a position and are now creating a moral case as to why this event that happened has to be interpreted through a blue or a red lens. We see this outrageous event, and of course we get outraged. We immediately want to fight against it. They want People see this, they want to rage against anyone who would dare to do such a horrible and nasty and awful thing. Now, because of our confirmation bias and because of our prejudices, if that event that's being reported on 
aligns with, if, if the way the event is being reported on aligns with our worldview or our religious views already or our political views already, then we don't even question whether the event itself actually happened or how we're interpreting it. Of course, we just accept it as fact. Immediately and at once, we, there's no question about that. All we do is dive in to get the details of it so we know specifically just how outrageous that event really was. Very rarely do we look at the event and go, is that really what happened? Are those really the facts? Is this really a proper interpretation of it? Well, Rachel Maddow said so, so it must be true. <laughs> or Sean Hannity said it, so it must be true. So we accept that this evil and horrible person did this evil and horrible thing and that, and that we need to be outraged about it. And here's the thing. The outrage that a person feels, very rarely do they have the opportunity to go express that outrage or take out their anger at the person who actually carried out whatever deed it is that they're so upset about. And so they look to find, who can I take this out on? Who's the, who's the closest target? What's the next best thing? Well, how about someone who supports that person that I think just oversaw, authorized, or was the ultimate uh, arbiter or responsible party for that outrageous event? And it's amazing how we connect those dots. We connect dots that have no business being connected. Trump sent a tweet a year ago, so therefore, you know, the, this, this guy goes and shoots up uh, the, the Gazette that happened this week. Tragic event. Absolutely horrible. But you know who was responsible for that? The guy who went and shot those people. The guy who actually went and took the guns, walked in the building, and carried out the executions. That's who's responsible. Not somebody who sent a tweet. And I'm talking about Maxine Waters, and I'm talking about Donald Trump. I don't care what side you're on. If you're blaming those people for some madman carrying out an act of madness... Now, that's not how this works. But getting back to my little story here, outrage person feels outrage and wants to take it out on someone. They want to feel like they can do something to fight back against this outrage. Whether the outrage really is true or not, it doesn't matter because they're so emotionally involved at this point that they just want to lash out. And so they end up lashing out at a friend or some random person on the internet who may or may not feel the same way that person does about their outrage. But they're going to take it out on this person. You're a Trump supporter, therefore you authorized, approved of, and think that this is a great thing. So I'm going to take this out on you. They feel that there's no way that they could possibly support such a thing, and therefore anyone who does must not be of the same moral fiber or caliber as they are. They must not even be human, because what human being could possibly stand by and watch such atrocities? Only a monster could do that. Therefore, everyone who has ever said anything in support of the offender is clearly in support of the atrocities and the evil, too. So they all have to be destroyed. That's where, that's where the mindset goes. I've watched it play out. And I have been part of it myself. The thing about conflict, what we'll call inner Nicene conflict, it's a nice word, uh, between 
citizens of the same country, same town, same area, friends. Those conflicts are always the most bloody. They're the most damaging. And they're the ones that produce the most collateral damage too. The idea with this, when it, when it gets this, it, is, it, it becomes personal. And so all possibility, all idea of civility just flies out the window because it's so personal. And there's no rules anymore. Why should there be? They didn't follow the rules, so why do I have to follow the rules? They didn't show any civility. Why do I have to show any civility? They're irrational, so I'll be irrational. Well, that's a way of thinking, but I don't think it's the best way of thinking because it always ends up in massive amounts of destruction and carnage, far beyond anything that anyone ever wanted. It always works out that way. We pay so much attention to selective parts of history that we think frame our arguments. Uh, you know, Trump's a Nazi, this sort of thing, right? Uh, United States has fallen into authoritarianism. We select out bits from history that we think support those arguments, and yet we fail to learn the ultimate lessons of history, which are that when we engage in internecine conflict, when we engage in brother-on-brother conflict, we already know the end result of that. Every single time it happens. Every time. Well, I thought some history might help out here. One of the things that we lose in our day-to-day lives, we get so caught up in the events of today and the social maelstrom of hysteria and, and narcissism and outrage. The, I, you know, I call Twitter the narcissistic outrage machine. And Facebook say, you know, a close second. We lose, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we lose perspective. We lose all perspective when we focus so tightly in on what we think is going on now that we fail to see what's happened before. So let's take a look at a time period that I think is very analogous to the events of today. And that time period is the 1960s. Now, the 1960s were an amazing period of time, vast social upheaval, huge institutional changes. In fact, the beginning of the idea of the deep, the deep state and conspiracy theories, which really can't be proven, but they won't really go away, that kind of started in that time period. The 1960s were really the death of institutional America in many ways. And I've made a lot of notes here on this, which I'm going to go over. In the 1950s, McCarthyism sort of began something. It began a cultural view of of things here in the United States that uh, it kind of kicked off an era of fear, an era really of of sort of silent terror um, between U.S., and Russia and the idea that nu- you know nuclear war, the Cold War really kicked off in the 1950s, and it was a very real war. The idea that what McCarthyism brought to the table was the idea that subversives could be anywhere. I mean, talk about paranoia. Your neighbor, your friend, your relative, anyone could be you know a red, and it's better dead than red. 
And so it, it set up this sort of internal cultural paranoia in the United States that you really couldn't really trust your, your, your neighbors or your friends. Now, John F. Kennedy comes along, very charismatic president. Cuban Missile Crisis goes down, probably the closest, really the closest, that, at least that we know of, that we came to nuclear conflict. That was averted, barely. But then, but then JFK was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. Fast forward a little bit, you have Malcolm X assassinated February 25th, 21st, 1965. Why? Not because he was pushing for violent revolution against the white man, but because he stopped doing that. He went to the Middle East, he came back, he started disavowing the nation of Islam. And so he was killed by his own people. Were they really fighting for equal rights for themselves or were they fighting for their own cause? There's a lot of lessons there, actually. I, can, I mean, the whole podcast could be done just on that. You know, when people are inciting other people to violence, you have to wonder if they're really doing it for the reasons that they say they're doing it. Again, if you look in history, you'll find vested interests and covert operations going on all over that sort of thing. Uh, in other words, people are saying one thing, but really what they want is something else entirely. All right, moving forward back to the 1960s here, we have the Civil Rights Act, 1965. We had fights, we had riots, both for and against that. Uh, it was awful. There was the University of Texas tower shooting, August 1st, 1966. Charles Whitman killed 16 people and injured 31 others, one of the most destructive mass shootings ever in history to this day. The Vietnam War. <laughs> I mean, remember uh, that picture of the uh, South Vietnamese officer shooting the unarmed Viet Cong officer? I mean, that went viral in the, the mid-1960s, uh, so to speak, viral. I mean, it didn't, well, they didn't have social media at the time as such, but uh, there, was, there were mass disruptions and protests at universities all over the country through the entire decade. In Orangeburg, South Carolina, on February 8, 1968, civil rights protest at a white-only bowling alley was broken up by highway patrolmen while three college students were killed in the process of breaking that up. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed by James Earl Ray on April 4, 1968. Following Martin Luther King's death, was uh, riots erupted up all over the nation. There was an attempted assassination of Andy Warhol, by radical feminist Valerie Solanas on June 3rd, 1968. There was Robert Kennedy's assassination on June 5th, just two days later, uh, 1968. The Kent State Massacre. The Ohio National Guard opened fire on protesting students, killing four and wounding nine. Now, of course, following the 1960s, moving into the 1970s, on just a couple points I want to highlight here, the Pentagon Papers broke the trust in the military. That was June 18, 1971. Um, there was, they were published in the Washington Post after the New York Times had stopped uh, when threatened by the White House. Supreme Court appeal was not really that warm and fuzzy on that issue either. As Thomas Tedford and Dale Herbick wrote in a book called Freedom of Speech in America, they wrote, quote, As the press rooms of the Times and the Post began to hum to the lifting of the censorship order, the journalists of America pondered with grave concern the fact that for 15 days, the free press of the nation had been prevented from publishing an important document 
and for their troubles had been given an inconclusive and uninspiring burden of proof decision by a sharply divided Supreme Court. There was relief, but no great rejoicing, in the editorial offices of America's publishers and broadcasters. And finally, on August 9, 1974, is the Nixon Watergate. Uh, Nixon resigned as a result of the Watergate scandal, which had to be the capping moment almost 11 years later to JFK's assassination, which rocked the world, rocked the nation. Everyone was in mourning for months, if not years. And then we come forward 10 years, and that same office is held in thorough disgrace. Now, if that's not a tumultuous time period in our history, there have been a lot of articles actually written about the parallels between our current state of affairs and the 1960s. I'm not the only one who's made these comparisons. So I look at all those things that happened in the 60s, and I look at the mindset of people who lived through that time. And of course, they're my parents. There are many friends of mine people I've known for years in and out of Scientology that I've spoken with about this, because uh, I was born in 1969, so I did not live through the 60s. But when I talk to or look at that period of time, I see a, a period of time that people didn't think they were going to survive, that they, we didn't think we were going to make it. The democracy was dead. America was dead. God was dead. <laughs> I mean, everything was going to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, tune in, turn off, <laughs> whatever the you know, Timothy Leary's thing was. Uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the only solution. And people thought that, you know, the country was going to hell in a handbasket and that we weren't going to survive, that we were uh, falling down a, a dwindling spiral of authoritarianism and that things were going to be over. And, of course, all of this undercut with the, cert the grim certainty that there was going to be a nuclear war between America and the United States at some point in the, in the unnamed future. So that was a thread all through the 1960s and all of the social uh, madness and, and protests and rioting and war and everything else that was going on. So those people had very good reasons to think that it was end times. They had tons of good reasons to think that. And in me, and me pointing that out and comparing that to now is really just trying to make the point that it wasn't the end of times. We did survive that period. We are still alive and well. You know, I was born in 1969. I'm 48 now, and I'm still alive and well and doing fine. It, it wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the United States. Now, in saying that, am I suggesting that everything is fine now? Of course not. Not even remotely. What I'm trying to point out is that how we deal with our problems and how we deal with the social situations that we're faced with and the government situations that we're faced with says everything about ourselves. We need to be better than we're being right now on a lot of fronts. The, the objective fact, if you just step back, and I know I'm, I'm, tons of people are going to disagree with me on this, but I don't care because I know that the objective fact and truth is that racial inequality, gender inequality, social inequalities have never been in a better place than they are right now. Now, I say that and people go, Rah! it's not acceptable, it's not enough. Well, fine, it's not enough. The statement that I made was it's never been better than it is now. And the proof of that is if you think there's a better time in the past where you could go live and have a better life than you can have now, please tell me what it is. 
I'm all ears. So I don't, I'm not have to, I don't have to make the point that this is the best of times. I'm merely making the point that this is the best of times so far in history. And we have a long way to go, tons of ways to go. We got all kinds of progress we still need to make. But let's not lose the perspective of the fact that we are in some of the best of times in many, many ways. And <laughs> that's just sort of an objective fact, okay? There will always be injustices. There will always be atrocities. There will always be things to point at to say and prove that things are horrible and awful and we must violently uprise against this because it's the only solution. People can always make that case. That doesn't necessarily mean that that case is true. Acknowledging what's right doesn't mean that we're ceding defeat and that everything is fine and that we should just put up with what's going on now. Now, I wanted to kind of go back to the 60s for a second because I talked about perspective. I listed out a whole bunch of horrible things that were going on in the 1960s. As e just as easily, I could list out a whole bunch of horrible things that are going on now. In fact, I've been talking on my podcast for a couple of years now about some of the horrible things that are going on. For a long time, we broke brought out the news every week and talked about all kinds of horrible things. And if that was your only view of the world, then or now then you might think we are going to hell in a handbasket. So let me go back to the 60s for a second. After painting this horrible picture about assassinations and uprisings and riots and student deaths and shootings and war, you know, why were we in Vietnam? Just like why are we in Iraq now or Afghanistan? I mean, constant state of war, all these comparatives. Well, let's take a look at a little bit of perspective about the 60s that might surprise you a little bit. I focused in on 1968. I thought, okay, if there was a year of ultimate tumult in the 1960s, 68 would probably be a pretty good candidate. But you want to know what else happened in 1968? All kinds of amazing and good things happened. And funny things, goofy things. In other words, life happened. On January 22nd, Laugh-In, the comedy show, debuted on NBC. On February 19th, was the premiere episode of Mr. Rogers. On April 2nd was the premiere of 2001 of Space Odyssey. On April 3rd, the next day, was the, was the opening of Planet of the Apes. On April 4th, again, the next day, Apollo 6 was launched. It was the last unmanned test flight of the Saturn V rocket. On April 29th, the musical Hair opened on Broadway. On May 18th, Mattel, the toy company, started producing Hot Wheels cars. On July 15th, One Life to Live premiered on ABC as a soap opera. On July 18th, the computer microchip company Intel was formed. On July 20th, the first International Special Olympics Summer Games were held at Soldier Field in Chicago, Illinois, with about 1,000 athletes with intellectual disabilities participating. On August 21st, 1968, the Medal of Honor was posthumously awarded to James Anderson Jr., the first black Marine to be awarded the Medal of Honor. On September 14th, Detroit Tiger Denny McLean became the first baseball pitcher to win 30 games in a season since 1934. He's the last guy to pull that off. 
on September 20th. Hawaii Five-0 debuted, debuted on CBS, and it was the longest-running crime show on TV until Law & Order came along in 2003. On September 24th, 1968, 60 Minutes, 60 minutes debuted on, C- on CBS. Still on the air. On October 1st, Night of the Living Dead premiered. On October 7th, at the height of protests against the Vietnam War, Jose Feliciano performed the Star-Spangled Banner at Tiger Stadium in Detroit during Game 5 of the pregame ceremonies in the 1968 World Series. His personalized, slow, Latin jazz performance proved highly controversial, opening the door for later interpretations of our national anthem. On October 11th, Apollo 7, which was the first manned Apollo mission launched, which broadcast live from space for the first time ever. On October 25th, Led Zeppelin made their first live performance at Surrey University in England. On November 14th, Yale University announced it was going to start admitting women. November 14th, 1968. November 22nd, the Beatles released the White Album. On November 22nd, Plato's Stepchildren, the 12th episode of the third season of Star Trek aired, which featured the first interracial kiss between Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura. On December 24th, the Apollo program, the manned U.S. spacecraft Apollo 8, entered orbit around the moon. This is the first time that humans ever saw the, first, the far side of the moon or the entirety of the planet Earth. And it was obviously the farthest any human being had ever traveled in history. That was where the famous picture of the Earth rise over the moon came from. And on December 26, 1968, Led Zeppelin made their American debut right here in Denver, Colorado. So here I am ragging on civil uprisings and rioting and violent protests and not really suggesting anything else to do instead. Well... Of course, I have highlighted the need for nonviolent civil protest, and I'm going to point to a case study of just how effective that can be, Scientology. Now, you might, I don't know if you think that that's a ridiculous example, but let me demonstrate. (laughs) From day one on my channel, I have never once pushed for or dehumanized any Scientologist. I have never said that we should strip away their civil rights or human rights, that we should treat them the way they treat us, that we should go fair game Scientologists, that we should go fair game David Miscavige, that we should go kill David Miscavige. I have never once asked or pushed for any such agenda. And in fact, any time anyone has ever come to my channel and said that we should do such things, and they have, I have deleted those comments and made it very clear that I am in no way, shape, or form advocating for any such action, because I know what would happen if I did. I know what would happen if and when we have seen violence taken out against the Church of Scientology. It backfires, it ricochets against the offender and against all of us in the worst way possible. It is the worst form of protest against Scientology to advocate for violence against Scientologists, I, will, I have never done it. I will never do it because it's not necessary to do it. Have you ever seen Leah or Mike, dehumanized Scientologists, try to make, it, make the case that they're not human, that they are evil incarnate, that they must be destroyed as individuals? Of course not, 
because they don't think that either. Do you think in looking back at the 1960s that all those haters and misogynists and bigots and racists and people who, you know, were that that those that those fights were being taken to, do you think none of them ever learn their lesson or change their mind that they were stuck in that mindset and they could never change? Because I don't think that. I've met people who used to be racists, who used to be misogynists, who used to be bigots. I met people who used to be Scientologists, who used to think disconnection was completely acceptable, was a completely rationalized thing to do. I was even in a mindset during brief periods of time when I was in Scientology where I would have martyred myself in a violent fashion for Scientology. I would have gone and taken out the enemy by the most violent means possible. If I had been told to do that, I very much would have done that. So I know what that mindset feels like. And I know that you can come out of it. You can change. You can change people's minds. I think that random acts of kindness and civility can be just as effective, if not more so, than violent protests, than sit-ins, than riots, than, than uprisings. Instead of dehumanizing our opponents, now is the time that we should actually be humanizing them more than ever, that we should be reaching out to them in some fashion. We forget the power of kindness and compassion. If we're not teaching that to our kids, then what lessons are we teaching to them? It's funny when you look back at the 1960s and what messages actually survived from that time period. The messages of peace and love. Yeah, there was all the violent uprisings and protests, but do we focus on that when we think about the 60s or do we concentrate on, you know, free love and woohoo and that sort of thing, right? We, those messages tend to be the ones that actually survive more and are stronger messages because they're messages of compassion. It's not that violence and war and hatred don't make their way through history or survive. Of course they do, but they have to be balanced, with this other half of what I'm talking about here. And if they're not, then all we're left with is the misery and destruction and violence and, and blood in the streets of, say, the French Revolution, the Inquisition, World War II, Stalinesque Russia, Mao's China. Those are places where compassion and kindness had no message had no way of being communicated or expressed. And look at what happened to them as a result. That's a lesson in history that I don't think enough of us are paying attention to right now. And so that's why I wanted to make this podcast. I've probably beaten the message over the head many, many times here, uh, probably beaten a dead horse at this point, but I just wanted to say it out loud and I wanted to say it in a way that I thought would make sense. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to this. Uh, I would very much appreciate your comments and your feedback, good, bad, or sideways. Um, I hope that this has been taken in the nonpartisan way it was meant because everything I've said here applies equally to the left as to the right, like I said before. So thanks again, folks, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.